Hello and welcome once again to Center Left Radio, the progressive voice of hope, politics, and jazz. My name is Richard Gazer, and as always, I am pleased and I'm honored to be your host and your commentator for another of our commentary shows, one of the shows that we have up on air and online 24-7 here at www.centerlefttalkradio, one word centerlefttalkradio.com when you get to the aforementioned website you will notice well you probably know by now uh, that there are two links the first link is to our podcast feed and you'll find uh, the well this show that you're listening to right now will be at the top of the list and there's probably another oh 45 or 50, I forget exactly how many our service keeps running, but it's one gets added in, another one gets dropped off, and uh, then the second link is there, and that's called our Radio Loop link for a very good reason. It's uh, the show running on a separate computer in a loop, and you pick it up wherever you happen to pick it up. Uh, You will get interested invariably. Uh, And what you'll do is, once you get to the end of the show, well, it's in a loop. So just wait around, oh, maybe three or four seconds, and it'll start all over again. You get to find out why you got so interested from the point you picked up. Uh, For those who listen to this show regularly, you know that uh, in recent years, we have added something to the standard commentary and jazz format that we use. Uh, we've begun what I refer to as Noble Hearts Forum, or f- I guess Fora. Uh, these are a bunch of guys, the people who, who populate these forums, Fora, uh, are guys that I went to high school with in a, in a rather special place here in New York City called Regis High School. And from time to time, we have had groups of, I don't know, three, four, five, uh, dealing with, discussing all sorts of uh, rather interesting topics. You've, you've gotten to know people like uh, Dr. Charles Webble. Uh, Charlie's also done some um, one-on-one interviews with me. Uh, Bill Arnone, I think, has done a couple of them. Jim Perricone did one. Well, we're going to continue in the mode of one-on-one individual uh, interviews today with guys I went to high school with. And uh, I I am very fortunate to have one of the more uh, distinguished... Oh, I'm always worried about that word. But we'll we'll call John distinguished. John D'Amelio... Uh, is Professor Emeritus of Gender and Women's Studies and of History at University of Illinois in Chicago. He is a pioneer in developing the field of gay and lesbian studies, an author or editor of more than half a dozen books, including Sexual Politics, Sexual Communities, The Making of a Homosexual Minority in the United States, Intimate Matters, A History of Sexuality in America, which he did with Estelle Friedman, Uh, Making Trouble, Essays on Gay History, Politics, and the University, and Creating Change, Sexuality, Public Policy, and Civil Rights. John, you are a big fan of subtitles, aren't you? I I, I just can't. (laughs) In in the nonfiction world, subtitles are really important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm a fiction guy. I I write fiction. I can't get away with that. you, oh, there's another thing that's that's that, and and by the way, I'm picking most of this up from your uh, your, your university-based information little uh, write up there. Uh, one of those books that we mentioned, Intimate Matters, was quoted by Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy in the 2003 Lawrence v. Texas decision that that ruled uh, state sodomy laws were unconstitutional. And uh, keep that thought in mind because we're going to be getting back to the issue of uh, judiciously or judicially quoting John in just a little bit. Now, John's also the recipient of the Editor's Choice Award from the Lambda Literary Foundation, uh, was a non-fiction finalist for the National Book Award, winner of the Stonewall Award of American Library Association for Best Gay and Lesbian Nonfiction Book. 
and has won fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation, the National Endowment for the Humanities, received the Brudner Prize from Yale University for lifetime contributions to lay and lesbian, wow, wow, I did a good one there, gay and lesbian studies, and was a fellow at the Center for Advanced Studies in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford. Now, what's not listed here, what's not listed, uh, and you, you're going to have to update your site there, John, uh, is your most recent book, Memories of a Gay Catholic Boy Coming of Age in the 60s. Uh, are you consciously not updating, or did I just happen to find a flaw in an otherwise perfect CV? Well, no, actually what it is is that I don't have anything to do with what is up there on the UIC site. A, li uh, a likely, a likely story. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Okay, I'll accept that. <laughs> yeah, I know how that works. I certainly know how that works. Um, I, uh, I had the opportunity to uh, peruse Memories of a Gay Catholic Boy Coming of Age in the 60s. Again, a nice, another good subtitle. Um, and as you can imagine, my favorite parts of the book were the parts about the stuff that you and I shared. Uh, you were a kid from Parkchester, the, the promised land, as you call it. And I was a kid from the Gunhill Projects. And I, I must tell you, Parkchester truly was, uh, for, for people from the, from the Gunhill Projects, Parkchester was the promised land. Did you, was, it, was that a thought that was running through your head while you were living there? Did it feel as good as it sounds when you look back on it? Well, yes, we were, we were made to feel by our parents uh, that Parkchester was this super special place, you know. It had been built at the end of the 30s by the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company. It was corporate America trying to be good to working class people during the Depression. Uh, and when I was growing up there in the 50s, it was still relatively new and it had playgrounds and it, it and fields of grass and yeah, yeah. elevators and oh my god it was like living in heaven yeah at least yeah. that's what we thought yeah yeah well I, I i was i was working when we were freshmen at regis uh starting that summer and for a couple of summers afterwards i was working at a at the cyo day camp they were out of somewhere out of queens and we had some friends who were counselors who lived in Parkchester, and I remember going there for some parties during the winter, like a you know a kids a Christmas party or something. And I was just so blown away by how cool a place Parkchester was. This this coming from a real NYCHA guy, as it were, New York City Housing Authority. And of course, you know we we knew each other back in in Regis and. Uh, and we were both in public. Well, I, we were in two different branches of public speaking. You were a you were a debater, and an extemp guy, basically, as I recall. Right. Yeah. Right. And I was the original oratory, dramatic interpretation type guy. I had I had to sit through listening to uh, a, a different assortment of people begin to say the same. There, there was this one particular speech that began with the words "on a diamond specked island in the Pacific." I remember this. And whenever you heard that said, it was this moaning, this internal moan. Uh, but, but we got to meet some really, really interesting people there, as I recall. And, um, and in fact, you, you told me not too long ago that uh, a girl that we both knew, you, uh, you, you dated at that, that time, which, which, is, which I was rather interested in hearing. I mean, no, obviously no names mentioned, but I've heard stories from a number of gay men over the years, friends of mine over the years, that usually th this is not an unusual sort of a uh, self-identity uh, realization being certain i'm not sure exactly what the what the modifiers are there but a lot of gay guys basically go through this moment or this period of having regular dates i guess in some cases it's a it's a question of doing what is expected of you given especially the times we were growing up in um i had one guy i knew um, who took it to the point where he got married and had four kids um and he was 
living one of the most outrageous double lives in the whole world. Um, and that was not unusual in yeah. the 1960s and 1970s. Yeah. You know, it was very, it was actually very common that lots of men who later on in life might finally, when their kids were grown up, might finally openly identify as gay, lived what were described as these double lives. You know, pretending to the whole world around them that they were heterosexual and then looking for opportunities to engage in gay sex, not relationships. Yeah, and, and I, I can only imagine how painful a thing that must be. Uh, I mean, as is, is difficult as getting through adolescence generally and beginning dating lives and social situations must be to have that additional pressure on you has got to be incredible. By the way, the guy I was talking about, uh, he, he died of AIDS back in the early 80s before they even had an official name for it. That's, that's how crazy his life wound up being. Um, what was it like observing that period of our history from your perspective at that time? What? Well, you know, as a teenager in the 1960s, I had these feelings, but I had absolutely no sources of information as to what these feelings were that I had. Yeah. I had no words to apply to it. You know, it's like, uh, really, I mean, I didn't, ha I didn't have, let alone gay, I didn't have the word homosexual even. And so you're living with these feelings and you're experiencing these attractions and you know they must be wrong. The, assum the assumption is what I'm feeling is wrong. That, that, yes. that's, that's well, the, certainly yeah, as yeah. growing up as a good Catholic boy, yeah, uh, yeah. if you were having sexual feelings towards men, oh, my God, this could not be a good thing. And yet the feelings don't go away. And, yeah. you know, as you were describing in terms of some people you knew, some men, the way they live with that is by pursuing a heterosexual life and then squeezing in moments of gayness. And eventually what happened is, you know, here we were growing up in a very intellectual environment in our teenage years. I eventually came upon the unusual books that actually talked about homosexuality. And that gave me a name for it. And one of them in particular, this novel by James Baldwin, Another Country, yeah. it was yeah. a contemporary novel set in New York City. And I read that novel, and then all of a sudden in my free time, I found myself going to all the places that he talked about to see if I would find another gay man. It was you literally, know? it was a guide for you, actually. Uh, yes, it was almost like a travel guide. Wow. Uh, in the, but, you know, in the form of fiction. Um, and, you know, Greenwich Village, Times Square, things like that. So, and yet, and so while on the one hand that was helpful, it still didn't help me deal with the fact that this is so sinful. What are you doing, John? Go to confession before you die and get, you know, you get hit by a taxi, die and go to hell. I, I'm not sure of the sequence. You've got, you've got about, you've just given me about three different paths to take to the same point I want to get to, and I want to get all of the ideas in there. Let, let me, let me go back to something I, I mentioned earlier, and I, I mentioned that you had been quoted uh, in uh, by by Justice Kennedy, Anthony Kennedy, in the Lawrence v. Texas decision, and and I was making a, a bad joke about the fact that you didn't have your most recent book up on the site, but what else is missing on your site, and the university should be, be sharp about this, is the fact that you've also been quoted again uh, very recently by Justice Sotomayor in her dissent in the 303 Creative LLC uh, v. Ellis, uh, Ellenis case, which I would consider, if it's humanly possible, it, if it's it's actually a worse reasoned decision than Dobbs was in removing and in, in, in destroying Roe v. Wade. But I, I wanna I wanna make a point of something that she said in the in the dissent that she wrote there, and she's dealing with you, she's quoting you 
in your role really as a gay and lesbian historian. And she says, um, this is on page 15 of her dissent, a few minutes later, an officer, oh, she's talking about, she's talking about the, um, uh, the Stonewall riot, the first night of Stonewall. And she says, a few minutes later, this is you being quoted, an officer attempted to steer the last of the patrons, a lesbian, through the bystanders to a nearby patrol car. When she started to struggle, protests erupted. They lasted into the night and continued into the next. News of Stonewall protests spread rapidly, and within a year, gay liberation groups had sprung into existence on, on college campuses and in cities around the nation. Now, I was working at St. Vincent's Hospital in their psychiatric uh, division in, in Rice Hospital, uh, Rice Rice Pavilion, actually. And we heard, we, we, we were working the four to, four to midnight shift during the summer, and I we heard in the bar that we went to after work, the whole bunch of us would, would show up someplace right near the hospital, and that was over on uh, 11th Street. We heard that something was happening down in Sheridan Square at the Stonewall, and a bunch of us decided to go down, and I stood on the corner of 7th Avenue uh, and looking down the block there and saw all hell breaking loose that night. Mm -hmm. were, you, were you anywhere near it at the time? Did you, were you around that or were you in? Well, no, actually, I mean, this is a very interesting little story is I was in Europe that summer, uh, one of those, you know, college summers in traveling around Europe. And I learned about the Stonewall Rebellion when I was in Paris and there was a copy of the Village Voice on one of the newsstands and I thought, oh, let me buy this. Wow. And wow. it was the issue of the Village Voice that covered the Stonewall Rebellion. Yeah. And so yeah. here I am like 5,000 miles away from where I live and I had been to the Stonewall. Oh, wow, times. wow. And it's like, oh my God, what is going to, this going to be like when we get back there? It was just amazing to read about it. I, I guess what I'm really interested to, here's one of the other places I wanted to get to with these thoughts. By the time that happened, that was that was 68 or 69, was that? That was 69. 69, okay. Were you already on the way to becoming the John D'Amelio that I just discussed or that I just read about from your college site there. Was that already happening? Or did Stonewall have some uh, developmental uh, force for you? Where were yeah, you no, becoming? No, not at all. I mean, when I was in college, I mean, um, two things were happening, or three things were happening to me in college. Yeah. One is I was finally accepting the fact that I'm gay and this is who I am. And I have no idea how I will construct a life around that, but I'm not going to pretend anymore that, and I'm not going to fight against it. Now, this is also pre-gay liberation. Yeah. And so I'm only telling the smallest number of friends that closest friends that I have, that this is who I am. And it was like, creating a home base for myself. Wow. So that's happening. Uh, then, having come from this very conservative Italian Catholic family, I also, during those years, became a pacifist and anti-war activist and registered as a conscientious objector with my draft board. So I was kind of dealing with all that. Yeah. But then the third piece of it is I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. I mean, no idea. I, I majored in, you know, as a way of kind of discovering my heritage. I, major, I created a major for myself, in effect, out of an interdisciplinary Italian studies, you know. So I learned Italian. I studied Italian history, Italian art history, Italian literature. But... When graduation was coming, I said, so what do I do now? And so I started buying the Village Voice and reading the job ads. Yeah. And yeah. I got a job at a library in New York City. Huh. You know, well, I really, it's like, I mean, Stonewall, it was wonderful to know about this, 
but I was still not ready to go that far and be an out of the closet militant gay man. No. Well, in in in, in four thousand words or less, uh, what was the what was was there a tripwire? Was there a particular moment? Was there yes. some particular event that got you? on the road to where you are right now? Uh, two different things. Uh, one is the job that I had at, in the library at Long Island University. Yeah. Uh, I was in the periodicals department and my boss said, I want you to read all these new periodicals that are coming out because of the protests of the 60s and tell me which ones we should subscribe to. And so I was reading all of these left-wing publications, Socialist Revolution, Radical America, New Left Review, and they were all offering this radical left-wing view of American history. And so I decided, oh my God, I haven't taken a US history course since I was a sophomore in college, in high school. this is what I need to do. I need to study U.S. history because that's how we can change the world by letting everyone know this left-wing, you know, radical view of the American past. And so that sent me to graduate school at Columbia studying U.S. history. And then, you know, at this point I had a boyfriend. I was living in a group household with other men. uh, And one of the guys who was a friend of a friend one day said who he he was also a history person uh he said you know just a a group of us are going to be meeting to talk about how research and writing could be an asset for the gay liberation movement do you want to come and i said oh my god yes (laughs) And that was in the late winter of 1973. I went to this meeting and I never stopped going to meetings after that. Uh, We created an organization called the Gay Academic Union that consisted of a variety of people who were gay or lesbian or bi in the university system and were trying to figure out how to do research or We had a conference that 300 people came to. Then we had another one that was double that size. And I decided, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do gay history, as we described it then. It's it's a wonderful feeling to know that someone, uh, besides someone that you know, and, and and a guy that I always respected, because you, you were one of the, I mean, we were all smart guys back in that school, but you were one of the smarter, smart guys there. And of course, we both shared the whole public speaking thing. But I, I, I love the idea that, you know, there's your name and suddenly you're in lights in the Supreme Court and stuff like that. Getting to the point where you were the person, the go-to person for this information obviously to me is nothing but an extension of the smart guy that I knew. And, you know, if anyone's going to do this, John could do it. You're, you have that kind of a structured way of thinking. You, I imagine, and from what I've seen when you were preparing for debate and everything, once you really set your mind to something, you could make it happen. And you obviously did a hell of a job of it. But beyond my being a fan, um, are you in a field or, or, or have you risen in a field that is heavily populated? Are there enough people doing what you're doing to get done what needs to get done? Well, you know, in some ways, I think that today that is true. But it certainly wasn't true back then. Yeah, yeah, I would imagine. Uh, you know, like, yeah. I, as I said, I went to that first meeting in 1973, and that had transformed me into a gay activist yeah. who was doing re- intended to do research and writing. Uh, it wasn't until 10 years later, almost, that I finally finished the dissertation, the book came out, and I got an academic job. But at the point at which I got this academic job, it was like I was the first or second person to have done an LGBT history dissertation 
and then get an academic job. Wow. I, wow, I wow, applied wow. for like 40 or 50 jobs and only got one interview. Wow. And the one interview I got, which hired me, was of all places in Greensboro, North Carolina. <laughs> one, one would not think the, the epicenter of gay and lesbian studies in America or sentiment, you know, but who knows? I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know this no, really. But, but also it's commentary on the time yeah. because the reason I actually probably got that job is because a member of the department who was on the search committee was also the husband of my partner's best friend okay. from college. And so he he could see me as a human being with real qualifications and you know and therefore help people jump over the idea gay history what's that nobody does so you, you you really you really are when 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 you're when your little air when your little storyline there in your cv or whatever i want to call it there from the college talks about you being a pioneer it's for real you were a pioneer of this whole process of this whole of this whole field of study of the communications that go with it also obviously it's yes yes and now one of the, and and then you know change occurred very very slowly in the 80s and 90s but by the turn of the century uh, when i actually got hired at University of Illinois in Chicago to teach yeah. LGBT yeah. studies. Yeah. Like, it's like, oh my God, now they're hiring people to do this. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Rather yeah. than, well, we are hiring you to do history, and I, we know you already, you also do this stuff. Um, but, right, at least, I mean, there are people in all sorts of academic fields, but at least in the field of history, for sure, there are quite a number of people now who are doing this sort of research and writing. And, you know, once upon a time, I could read in a given summer every book on LGBT studies that had ever been written. Well, you're a good reader, but I mean still. <laughs> but now, in a summer, I might not even be able to read all the books that had been published in the last year. You know, it's like so... It is a field that has grown. There are lots of courses on campuses all over the United States. Um, it's, it's a, for, I mean, you know, there's still work to be done, but oh my God, things have changed a lot in the last 40 to 50 years. I want to, I want to really refocus and we're going to go, we're going to have a break in just a moment now, but I want to refocus after the break largely on what your influence is, how you perceive, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested, and I'm sure our audience is very interested now and has learned something about what you've done. I want to focus on what the influence is. I want to focus from the perspective of the people that you're trying to reach, and I also want to add a little more information about what uh, Judge Sotomayor said in her dissent, and we'll use that as a as a starting point to get into your impact, let's call it. Your impact statement is coming up very shortly after a little jazz. Thank you. 
This is Richard Gazer. You know, it takes lots of time and effort and all kinds of resources to produce the kind of quality program we produce here at Center Left Radio. And it costs money to do it. Now, if we screamed a little louder or thought a little less about what we were saying, we could probably get a few advertisers to pay us to sell their products to a more tribally predictable audience. But that's not who we are or who you are. You come to Center Left Radio for non-commercial, thoughtful commentary. You're looking for an honest, progressive approach to solving America's problems, not exacerbating them. And we're committed to providing all of that. We're one of the few stations offering full-time, non-commercial, progressive programming. And we're the only station, the only one, doing it with a combination of hope, politics, and that most eloquent of all original American art forms, jazz. Think of it this way. We support your needs. Now we're asking you to support ours. Take a moment and go to our website, www.centerlefttalkradio, one word, centerlefttalkradio.com, and go to the donate page. And when you get there, give whatever you can on a one-time or maybe a recurring basis, $5, $10, $1,000, whatever you can contribute to make Center Left Radio's unique progressive voice stronger and even more significant as the full extent of the wrongdoing of Donald Trump and his associates becomes all the more evident and as we seek to hold the House Democrats accountable for the promises they made to the American people during the last election. Yeah, you know what's at stake. And I know, we all know, we can count on you. On behalf of all of us at Center Left Radio, thank you. We're back, and you're listening to Center Left Radio, the progressive voice of hope, politics, and jazz. My very, very special guest today is... My friend, John D'Amelio, uh, from decades back and fortunately decades, hopefully a few more decades forward, we're talking about his life uh, as a, uh, at a point where self-discovery was quite literally self-discovery in coming of age as a gay man, especially in a Catholic environment, uh, back in the 60s and where John has gone since then. If you're listening to this in the loop, stick around, wait till the end of the show, get the storyline up front. But as I said before the break, um, I really want to deal a bit more right now with where uh, where all this is going. Um, and I'm trying to, to focus on, and I'm looking for the information here. I had a, oh yeah, here it is, here we go. Um, I wanna read something from Justice Sotomayor's dissent in the Creative LLC v. Ellenis case. And she's talking about the, the logical basis on which, uh, well, the, the logic that it was allegedly employed by the majority in reaching the what I consider a horrific decision in essentially allowing open rejection of, uh, of, of a class of people based on a, on a presumptive uh, right of, of, of free speech. It was a speech-related thing. Speech versus conduct is the way the majority put this, saying that, uh, that this allowed them to basically do things that no law and no Supreme Court decision ever allowed. Let me read something here, and she's talking. The majority tries to sweep under the rug petitioners' challenge to the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act Communication Clause. So I will start with that, she says. Recall that Smith wants to post a notice on her company's homepage that the company will refuse to sell any website for a same-sex couple's wedding. This court, the Supreme Court, however, has already said a ban on race-based hiring may require employers to remove a white applicants-only sign. So petitioners concede that they're not entitled to an exemption from the communications clause 
within the Colorado law unless they are entitled to an exemption from the accommodation clause. I hope I'm not getting too lawyerish over here, but this is important stuff. That concession is all but fatal to their argument because it shows that even pure speech may be burdened by an incident to uh, by the incident of a valid regulation of conduct. Now, as a lawyer reading that, I instantly went, oh my God, how could anyone in their right mind, how, how could the court, how could, how could, who was it, uh, Alito, was, I think took the lead in the majority on this one. This is, the majority's opinion is so seriously flawed that it's, to me, it would be, I would be legally embarrassed if I were the author of what, and I read the majority decision in this case. It is as crazy as the statements that were made that allegedly justified the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade. The arguments were ridiculous. They basically took stare decisis, the, the rules of the court that say we respect our own prior decisions and it's going to take a hell of a lot for us to overturn them. It, threw it, it just threw it out the window. What I'm getting at, seeing and hearing this kind of language coming out of the Supreme Court of the United States, and knowing how much you still have to do to both educate kids like yourself and reassure people that there is a way to basically grow up in the environment we're in right now. Where do you go from here? How do you knowing what the attitude is in the country and the attitude of the court, for starters. How do you get across what message to the people who need it? Because if, it, given the field of information or the field of communication that you're in right now, what do people need to hear from you and how do you get it out to them in the environment we're in? Well, and remember that this, this in, a, in a very real sense, this court case and the decision they made no longer represents majority opinion in the United States. Absolutely not. Absolutely and not. And so it's like this is it's a horribly negative decision, but it's a negative decision that exists at a time when access to positive information about LGBTQ life is so widely available. So the court is allowing a form of discrimination here, and that's bad, and, you know, people are going to be angry. And But on the other hand, at the same time, for younger people coming of age, there are so many ways of making connection. Uh, parents have so much access to other kinds of positive information. There is, there is community. There are, I mean, there are tens of thousands of LGBTQ organizations around the country now. And so one of the things, I mean, you know, over time, uh, if you were, to, you know, if you go back over the last 50 or 60 years, what, one of the things you'll see is that there are these periods of short, intense periods of really homophobic reaction. Short, uh, short. intense, the two, the two words there. Short, intense. In the, the beginnings of the McCarthy era, it happens in the late 70s with Anita Bryant in Florida. Yeah, I and about her. her yeah. Save Our Children campaign. Uh, it happens in the in the 90s in relationship to the military debate and the rise of the marriage issue. But uh, as one activist who was at a demonstration against Anita Bryan in Chicago in 1977 said, "Every kick is a boost." <laughs> one of the one of the results of these intense periods of homophobic and transphobic reaction is that it actually ends up having to ends up mobilizing the community at a greater level. 
Now, we're not quite at the point where that's already started to happen in this round of reactionary, homophobic, transphobic stuff that's going on. But I really fully expect that over the next, especially as we approach the 2024 election, we're going to see uh, a more visible and again, militant and vocal LGBT response to some of these things. It's not gonna be able to change a Supreme Court decision, but on the ground, it's going to create different kinds of legal protection in different states and build uh, a stronger movement. So, so you are, would you consider yourself an optimist or would you say that within people within the movement at the level and, and with the tools and, and, and with, the, with, the, uh, with the effort to create the world as you're trying to create it for the gay community and educate everybody else in the process, is this sense of optimism shared or is John an optimistic guy, basically? Uh, well, you know, I... I, as a historian, I have a longer view. Yeah, and yeah. while, yes, there are terrible things happening like climate change and, you know, police violence and many sure. other things like that. Sure, yeah. Around LGBTQ issues, you can see this arc. You know, you think about what Dr. King said, you know, the arc of justice. And we're moving in those directions, even though there has been reaction against it. It's very hard to predict how it will play out, but organizations are, at least some organizations are using, and I'm not gonna name any names, but they're using this as a way to rouse their constituency and increase their resources so that they can do more lobbying work in different states, uh, so that they can provide support services to youth who might be finding themselves cut off. Um, and I, I don't think anybody is making light of the opposition at all, because it's awful, the yeah. things that are happening. But there is a sense that we will keep fighting back. So is part of that fighting back the, the assumption and the, reason, the reasonable assumption that the LGBT community will participate strongly in the 2024 election and participate in the direction and, and, and support the candidates that are necessary to overcome the type of garbage that we just heard uh, from the majority in this, in, this, uh, in this case. Yes, there will be mobilization. I can't, I won't make claims as to how strong it will be and how visible it will be yeah. and whether it's bigger than anything that's happened before. But, but certainly there is going to be an effort to mobilize people to make sure they come out and vote, that they're registered, uh, and that they're campaigning for yeah. favorable yeah. candidates. What, what drives me crazy in, 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 in what I do here uh, and as I, as I, let's say I, I, I do two of these shows a week. Usually we've done about 800 shows so far over, over the last six and a half years, the way the media is structured now, everything depends on their, they across the board uh, from left to right, basically convincing, convincing the listener or the viewer that there is a, a concentrated absolute moment in time this being it today whatever today's news cycle is producing and that is absolutely the, the, the last word it is it is the final statement of where things will be a week from now six months from now a year from now there is this absolute collapsing down of time and the perspective issue that you mentioned coming from someone with a historian's background that is the antithesis of what one picks up usually from media on all sides especially cable news media that sort of thing so your perspective of seeing a larger thing and understanding where things are going would I don't know that it's necessary in total opposition to the way media is presenting things, but it sure as hell is different. It, it's it's uh, 
I, I, and I get very, very annoyed with that, and I try on the show to basically say, well, wait, this is only a moment. Uh, wait for a few more, uh, uh, you know, indictments against Trump. Don't assume that the base can never change. Nothing can ever happen. Everything is etched in stone. There's a constant evolution going on here. And I would gather from what you're saying that the evolution is one that you're not, you're not, you're not frightened of it in any way. You see it going in the direction it should. Well, yeah, no, in, in response to a very unfortunate and hateful reactionary moment that we're living through. Yeah, yeah. But as, as you're suggesting, one of the things that the media does not by and large do is provide us with a longer perspective of movements. It's not they, contextual in the slightest. Yes. They focus on an event. Yeah. This yeah. event. Yeah. DeSantis has done this. Yeah. Greg Abbott has done that. And extrapolate outwards <laughs> from the moment. They don't see what's then going on the going on, on the ground yeah. in lots of places because that isn't headline making and dramatic. But on the other hand, it can provide the basis and the foundation for change to occur. And the change may seem to occur slowly and incrementally, but it builds over time yeah. and, and it solidifies. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, I mean, one of the best examples of this is the movement for marriage equality, which, you know, seemed to come out of nowhere at the beginning of the 90s and stimulated an intense right-wing reaction. I mean, a majority of the states passed constitutional amendments, you know, that wrote into law, no marriage equality. Yeah. Uh, and But this mobilized the community like never before. And on the local level, in, in a number of and more liberal red states or, you know, what do they call them, purple states, uh, positive change was made. And then the Supreme Court made this decision. Yeah. Yeah, um, and and so wow, um, no one would, no one in the mid '90s would have predicted that 20 years later there would be marriage equality. I, and, I, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, in a certain way, you could say, well, marriage equality—that's that's so mainstream. It's not radical gay liberation. But on the other hand, it's also true that the marriage. Same-sex weddings have probably been the events that have opened more people's hearts to the humanness yeah. of LGBTQ yeah. people yeah. than anything else that's happened. Yeah, yeah. I've been to a few of them. They're, well, you know, it's, it's a, they're weddings and they're friends and it's a, it's a yes. great situation. I would like to now, let's go backwards. I, we talked about you as the 16-year-old kid that I knew back in school and everything, in public speaking and everything else. You said that there are countless organizations that could help today's 16-year-old, 15-year-old. How early would you suggest, what, and I don't want to put you in a spot on this, but what happens to that 14-year-old who basically still maybe doesn't have a word for what they're feeling emotionally are the mechanisms and are the are the vehicles in place are the institutions are the organizations are the support groups is there some place where most schools would be able to direct that kid or some uh, I don't know it would family I, I'm not sure what the group is like are they yeah. in that much better shape now than you were when you were 14, 15, and 16? Well, they're certainly in better shape. Now, I do mean, they know, the do things... they know as little as you knew at this moment until their their eyes are opened up by some organization or some group? What do you well, think? you know, depending on where you live and the context in which you live, yeah. you could be a 14-year-old today who still has very little sense of what you're feeling and what this what this means yeah but that is quite exceptional uh, because you know i mean mainstream television yeah. Yeah. uh the yeah. the number of uh tv series on cable television that have 
that are about LGBT people or that have their have them as one of the characters in it and and things like that. It's so widespread that it would be almost impossible, except in very unusual environments, to censor that all out so that a young person would know nothing. So they might still feel bad because of how they've been raised and where they've been raised, but they would have access to more information. Knowledge is there. The knowledge is there. And then this is a world that I'm not really that familiar with, this sort of online world where you can, you know, sort of connect with people. But, you know, given the range of social media that exists today, it's almost impossible for a young person who's on social media not to encounter some connection with a larger LGBTQ world. Going from there, though, how does one try to guide these young people into getting the right kind of positive information, the mm-hmm. information is there in all places. How does John D'Amelio and, and the work that you do in some way help to guide people down a correct path that will bring them to a, a, a better self-appreciation? And, oh. Right. Well, and again, this is going to depend... There, there'll be differences geographically, but to use Illinois as as a good example, and Illinois is definitely a blue state, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but for years, there was an independent organization in Illinois called the Illinois Safe Schools Alliance. And it was an organization with paid staff whose goal was to make contact with teachers, staff, educators in high schools and middle schools around the state to provide them both with information and resources as to how to create a safe environment for LGBTQ students in their schools. Uh, that that does, and now instead of being an independent organization, it's actually part of a larger organization that deals with issues of public health and safety and uh, nonviolence, you know, against yeah. you know violence yeah. in schools and things like that. Yeah. But but one of the things that's meant is that hundreds, if not thousands, of schools throughout the state have access to information. This is just in Illinois and, we're talking about right now. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Now, this is not true probably for all 50 states, but there are going to be so many states that have organizations like this. And one of the results of those organizations is that local schools have what originally in the 90s and the early 2000s were called GSAs or gay straight alliances in school, which were student groups. Um, Now, in many places, they're called queer, you know, student alliances. But as an example of this, our high school, Regis High School, a Catholic school, has a group where well, not gay and bi students and trans students and their friends and allies come together. That's amazing. Now, who would have thought that this would have no. in our high school when wow. we were there in the 1960s? Yeah. Well, and and this, the group doesn't have, you know, it doesn't have a gay name to it. But everybody knows that the group exists, and this is what it's about. Well, and I'm not referring to Regis specifically here, but the church still. I mean, we we have we have a uh, the, the the best statement that's been made by any by any pope so far has been, uh, "Who am I to judge?" And I think that's a wonderful statement from Francis. But there's mm-hmm. still a, shall we call it a technical uh, declaration of. Is it inappropriateness or flat-out sinfulness that that is associated with homosexuality? Well, yes. By the church. Yes, but one of the things I discovered when the memoir came out, Memories of a Gay Catholic Boyhood, was that that through invitations I got to speak and through connections that came through friends of friends of friends, I got a sense, which I didn't realize before, that in a very real way, and I'll just be speaking obviously in the US, 
there are two Catholic churches. There is the official Catholic church and what its position is. And then unpredictably from this parish or that parish on the ground, there's a Catholic church that is much more accepting and welcoming than what official church theology teaches. The official church is the one you and I, you and I left, as I recall. Yes, yeah, yes, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Wow. And it's, yes, it is really. It's. I was very surprised because of some of the invitations that I was getting wow. to speak. Yeah. Wow. You. One of the things that that just thinking back to an earlier part of our of our discussion just now, I, I think I'm I'm going to put words in your mouth, but I don't th- I don't think I am that a key moment in your life was the moment that you felt normal and safe about being gay. And it took you until well into college and perhaps a little later before that point came in your life. Yeah. Well, there were, in a sense, there were two different points. There was the point where I said to myself, this is who I am. This is who I'm going to be. I'm not going to try to change it. But at that point, and that was in college, right. at that point, I still felt, but John, you need to be very, very careful because of what can happen to you. Right. So, you know, so it was my, it was almost my, my secret and the secret of a few friends that I had. But then several years later, when I was in graduate school and in my mid twenties, I came to the point, and this is where my activism began, where it moved from being personal, this is who I am, but this is like what I'm committed to doing. This is my activist life now. I am going to be public. I'm going to come out to my parents. I'm I'm just going to be completely out of the closet. And so it was like a two-stage thing that happened. Well, if we could, but then flash, you know, Move forward over here. Let's talk about kids today. Can a kid in his junior or, or she or in her, their junior or senior year of high school even, can they be both true to themselves about how they feel, be out about who they are, and actually be safe? Or do they have to still continue to be cautious as you were just describing what is what is the equation how is that equation changed There's the both, both worlds exist yeah. right now in yeah. the u.s there are places where as a teenager you can completely embrace this identity let the world know you can be accepted by your family by friends by teachers and the like you can find places in different religious institutions that will be very accepting and then there are other places where individual teenage individuals say, no, this is true about themselves, but are still needing to be very careful and cautious. Yeah. If so there's, we live, live in two worlds. If there's, I don't think we're going to get many, we don't have many 16-year-olds listening to this show, but if there's a parent of a gay child, uh, of an LGBT child, or, or they're, they're, they're aware of their child going through a process of questioning and want to get help and information, can you suggest any, a starting point, perhaps? Well, absolutely. I mean, there's one, organ, especially for parents, there's one organization called PFLAG, Parents and Friends of Lesbians and Gays. Now, that name goes way back, but they're also open to trans and bisexual and everything else. But PFLAG is both a national organization and has local chapters all over the place. So if one were to Google PFLAG uh, as a parent, you would be able to find access to resources that would be supportive and helpful to you. If if, if there's one thing that, uh, and I'm speaking to our listeners at this point, if there's one thing everybody can come up, besides an appreciation of John, obviously, but uh, yeah, that is the that's the takeaway. Where do you start uh, to assist your own children and your own family in your own community? P flag it is. Okay, uh, would you happen to? Well, I imagine the website should sound something like 
pflag.com or something like that? It's probably pflag.org. .org, okay. Uh, but if you did parents and friends of lesbians and gays somewhere, just P-F-L-A-G, something would come up for you. John, uh, <laughs> well, it, it's been a pleasure, and, and uh, it, it, it's... It was a pleasure when I met you at our 50th reunion. I hadn't seen you uh, in, in my case, it would have been 51 years, I guess. Uh, you'd grown a little taller. <laughs> I, I, I remember, this is, this, this is the strangest thing when you've been sort of diasporized from a community, but uh, you were a little guy and you're, you're not a little guy anymore. You know? I, I continue to grow uh, into college. And in, <laughs> certainly in my eyes as well. Um, my guest has been John D'Amelio. It's Dr. John D'Amelio. Do, do, you don't, I don't see doctor much places here, you know. I, I, don't, I don't use that. Yeah, <laughs> well, I don't use John Counselor D'Amelio. Richard Gazer either, so there. Uh, John has been our guest. I'm, I'm extremely grateful for his, for his knowledge, for his insight, for his friendship. And, uh, and just how cool an interview this has been. Uh, I hope we get a chance to do it again. John, you know I'm going to be bothering you to come on to one of those Noble Hearts Forum panels. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of slots that you would fill beautifully, so get ready to get pestered about this as we go. <laughs> okay. Um, thank you all for listening to us today also. And you know what we always do at the end of any one of our shows, including a one-on-one -on -one interview with a guy from high school. Uh, we kind of like to kick back, think about it, absorb what we've heard and thought. This is not a finger-waving uh, didactic exercise, but however you want to put it, things go down better with a little jazz.
listening to Central Left Radio, the progressive voice of hope, politics, and jazz. My name is Richard Gazer, and thank you once again for being part of today's show. My very special guest today, John D'Amelio, professor emeritus at the University of Illinois at Chicago and a dear friend. John has been a major force in the development of LGBTQ studies and, and uh, gay and lesbian history in America. And if there's one takeaway from him as a historian, we're in a blip, a moment of negativity that we can overcome, our better angels will prevail.